0: Hello and welcome to the Church Times podcast. I'm Ed Thornton, assistant editor. On this week's episode, we'll be talking about the fostering case in Tower Hamlets, the Row at St Sepulchre's, the National Musicians' Church, and we'll be speaking to Eve Poole about the digital obesity crisis. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Church Times for 5 issues for 5 pounds of our print and digital edition at churchtimes.co.uk/subscribe. Well, we're all back from the Greenbelt Festival after a sunny weekend. I'm joined by Madeleine Davies, Deputy News and Features Editor, Tim Wyatt, Digital Editor, and Hattie Williams, News Reporter. The Times newspaper reported on Monday on its front page that Tower Hamlets Council had placed a five year old girl from a Christian family and native English speaker with Muslim foster carers. The story's caused a great deal of controversy. Madeline, you've been following it up and getting behind some of the more sensationalist headlines, and it's a more complex and nuanced picture than perhaps it first appeared.
1: Yeah, so I think the publication of the court papers um, on Wednesday shone quite a different light on on what had occurred. So some of the things that emerged um, were that the maternal grandmother, who now has care of the child, um, is recorded as being from a Muslim background herself, um, although her daughter, the child's mother, um, disputes that. Um, Also the fact that um, the the maternal grandmother is hoping to actually go back to her country of origin um, with the child so she'd be actually taken out of the country and also the fact that she, from what we can see from the court documents, speaks a different language from the child's mother. So it would appear that even if the child is placed in the maternal grandmother there is still um, this question of matching um, religion and language. Um, so, yeah, sort of a lot more complicated than the original story suggested.
0: And what have people been saying? Um, Krishkan Kandaya is a very prominent Christian campaigner on fostering and adoption and, and an expert on these things. I believe he's commented on this case.
1: Yeah, so he wrote a letter to the Times in which he said that the government uh, needed to recruit a diversity of foster carers. I think he's previously estimated that we need about another 9,000 foster carers in order to meet um, the needs of children in the country. Um, he also talked about the need for faith literacy in foster care, um, which is also something that was brought up by Elaine Dibbon, um, who works for Quorum BAAF, um, which supports local authorities and fostering agencies. Um, She talked about the fact that actually um, it's not unusual for children to be placed with families um, which are of a different religious background. So a lot of Muslim children, for example, might be placed with um, families that are Muslim. And in those cases, it's really important to increase the family's faith literacy. So you could do that by giving them literature, um, explaining, um, for example, um, traditions, Um, you could also link up that family with the local faith community, which might be the mosque or community centre, or in this uh, case perhaps a church. Um, So there are already um, cases where children are placed with families where there isn't a perfect match. Um, she said that's particularly common if it's a case of a, sort of an emergency placement um, we know that in the case raised by the times um, the police placed um, the charge in the care of social services and, as an emergency um, so it may have been that um, the council really had to find a family extremely quickly and they've already said that um, at that time there wasn't a white family um, available
2: it's probably worth looking into a little bit about the, uh, the legal context Uh, the children's act from 1989 um, says that local authorities must give quote due consideration to a child's religious persuasion racial origin and cultural and linguistic background which of course doesn't preclude placing a child outside of that background but i think it's interesting to remember just a few years ago when uh, michael gove was uh, education secretary he uh, himself uh, adopted as a child made a big plea saying Uh, local authorities are too desperate to try and match up ethnic and cultural backgrounds and they're leaving kids in care for years where they try and find the perfect match it's better to put you know uh, a white child with black parents or vice versa than leave them uh, in 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 care in a care home so it's interesting how um yeah maybe moods are shifting on that
1: there's also um obviously Elaine highlighted that that's um refers to adoption rather than fostering, Um, but I know Sir Martin Neri, who's currently conducting a review of fostering, has raised concerns and said that we shouldn't go back um, to an era where perhaps there was an overemphasis on matching according to um, religion and race. Um, He's argued that that doesn't matter in 2017, which I think is a statement which probably will be debated uh, by various groups.
0: Yeah, Andrew Brown's covered this in his press column, hasn't he, this week, of the reporting of this case. He says the reaction to this was often simple tribalism. We don't want our children looked after by them. As such, it appears to be a universal phenomenon what unites the human races that we're all divided by the same impulses. But it does make it incredibly difficult to report these things responsibly.
2: It's also worth noting, actually, that some of the details in the initial reporting over the weekend have subsequently come come unstuck as it were as more information has come out of the council and from the court ruling for instance as, as madeline says there is debate over about whether actually the grandmother who this child has now been placed with is herself from a muslim background and there's also the council insists that the fo- original foster family were not non-english speaking as some of the reports said that they were a mixed-race family who did speak english um so it's clearly a very con- uh, confused picture, and obviously, all complicated by the fact that in family court proceedings, this almost remain anonymous, so we don't actually know mm. or we can't report exactly the identities of who these people are.
0: Mm. The leader column also notes Baroness Varzi's talk at Greenbelt last weekend, in which she lamented the common attitude that Muslims are all the same and are different from everyone else. And the leader says to learn that similar prejudices are voiced by Muslims is to glimpse the forces that keep the different communities apart. <laughs> One church story that's caused quite a stir over the summer is the case of St Sepulchre's, the National Musicians' Church in the centre of London. It's been reported that the church has been closed for hire from musicians in order to make more space for worship and church activities. Um, Madeleine, you've been following the story. Can you just give the background for those who've perhaps been on holiday and didn't catch this?
1: Yeah so just briefly um, the PCC voted um, to close the church for hire so previously it had actually been hired by a really large number of musicians groups who were either rehearsing or performing there. Um, It's um, the National Musicians Church it's got that heritage um, this provokes something of an outcry. Um, so musicians' groups very unhappy about this decision, um, particularly because of this heritage, um, the fact that um, it's got this link to Sir Henry Wood, who conducted the Proms, um, and that many kind of really distinguished groups have traditionally um, been able to perform in the church. Um, I believe the petition has got more than six thousand signatories now, um, who are asking the church to reconsider. Uh, From the church's point of view, they've argued that it was becoming really difficult to balance that hiring programme with their own activities, um, with worship and with the many um, sort of other ministry um, programmes that they operate. Um, Although they have said that they have very much taken note of this outcry and that they're going to consult on the best way forward. Um, One of the people that they said they would consult is Dr Andrew Eris who was their director of music, he's now director of music at St Martin-in-the-Fields, and he's actually the person who has written our comment this week um, on the story.
0: That's right, that's on page 11 of this week's issue. Andrew Iris writes about a key turning point being the arrival of a priest in charge from Holy Trinity Brompton, so this, since Epochus, has been a church plant. And is, is that when things change in the relationship between the leadership and the musicians?
1: So, this was described as a partnership um, in 2013. Um, it was sort of one with the blessing of the Bishop of London. Um, two groups arrived um, one group from Holy Trinity Brompton and one from St George's Hoban. Um, they started uh, Sunday services again, also a midweek service. Um, They also have choral Evensong, which I know the church has said that they're planning to maintain. Um, But from what Dr Iris has suggested, um, although there was um, a lot of goodwill initially around um, maintaining um, this sort of musical heritage of the church, um, there's a a feeling in some quarters that 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 hasn't um, kind of been fulfilled um, and that um, there's been something of, of a breakdown in that sort of relationship.
2: It's almost like this case is a kind of microcosm of the broader debate that we've seen in recent months and years about the HDB church planting scheme and and those questions of whether a church plant is a power grab by HDB to impose one style of charismatic evangelical worship or whether it's possible to do it in a way which is um, mutual and and, uh, in which you can blend different traditions and styles of worship together. I
1: know Dr Eris has told me previously that in 2013 the PCC was quite balanced, so it was a mix of people who'd come from these two groups and sort of the original um, congregation. Um, I think what he was saying was that um, those original people have since kind of left or moved on and so the people that remain I think he feels perhaps don't fully appreciate um, the importance of um, the National uh, Musicians Church heritage that the church has. Um, I think that's sort of one of the the things that he mentioned to me.
0: I think one of the interesting things about Dr. Eris' piece is that he's not saying there's a sacred-secular divide here, that that the musicians just want to hire a beautiful concert space. He says, I firmly believe this outpouring of dissent about this decision is not just an attempt to keep Sinsepulchres as an affordable rehearsal and concert venue, but a cry for a real spiritual home for musicians. And he says... um, He says, for me, there is no distinction between concerts and worship. It is all church. It's hard to argue Bach's St. John Passion or Mozart's Requiem is any less of a spiritual experience than a church service.
2: I think it's interesting what he says at the end about how there's a a huge missional opportunity for St. Sepulchre's. You know, he's not saying that we need to wind the clock back and, you know, undo the the HDB church plan at all, but actually... um, it wouldn't be impossible to find a middle ground and find a way in which this church could be a live active congregation that you know does mission and outreach to Hoburn and the place it's in but it can also continue its you know long heritage as a special place for musicians both in terms of you know ministry to musicians and also as a place for concerts mm. I think you know I think I imagine that would probably be the outcome you'd think there is such such an outcry from the musicians that you would imagine the church and the PCC would look to find a way in which they can you know, both both sides of their ministry of the church can be fulfilled in the same building I think uh,
1: also we're expecting um, further comment from St Sepulchre's, I think at this point we have obviously heard a lot uh, from people who are unhappy about this decision um, it will be interesting to see how they respond, um, it's sort of a couple of weeks now I think until we've sort of last heard from them um, so it will be interesting to sort of hear the other side of the story perhaps
0: if they do respond you can of course read about it on churchtimes.co.uk over in the united states more than 150 evangelicals have signed a statement on human sexuality in the bible it's called the nashville statement hattie you've been following this story why do you think this is significant
3: Um, Sure. So the statement was released by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, um, which is an evangelical coalition in the United States. Um, And it basically lists 14 beliefs, um, which include, among other things, a kind of rejection of the idea that marriage can be anything other than uh, between one man and one woman. And it also uh, makes some comments about um, uh, homosexuality in terms of the very approval of homosexual. As, as it says, immorality, is sinful in itself. Um, so obviously, uh, some quite strong statements there from conservative evangelicals. And later this week, uh, the day afterwards, in fact, Christians in support of LGBT uh, members of the community have uh, released a statement which is uh, almost in parallel to the Nashville Statement, and it's called Christians United. And it actually mimics the, the layout and the uh, language Um, of the original Nashville Statement and sort of goes against it and says that actually we need to worry more about uh, human flourishing in terms of welcoming LGB people into the church um, and also not condemning people who are supportive or approve of of, uh, homosexual relationships even if they're not practising themselves. I mean, in some ways it's nothing. The statement isn't particularly new. It's sort of making the same... Uh, points and opinions that have been expressed before, but I think uh, the way it's set out in you know its own website and and some of the um, the tone and 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 the language of the these articles um, has actually caused quite a lot of upset, particularly on social media and perhaps from those um, alienating those um, who aren't necessarily church members or uh, Christians themselves. Obviously, it's um, quite a negative uh, backlash, but in terms of signatories. Uh, There's no surprises really in terms of who signed um, either statement. Um, One of the signatories of the Nashville Statement is the Reverend Sam Albury, who's a non-stop injury minister at St Andrew and St Mary Magdalene in Maidenhead, and he actually self-identifies as same-sex attracted, um, but he welcomed uh, the Nashville Statement saying that it it actually uh, brings clarity to issues where he says there is often silence, pain and confusion.
0: Sam Albury is a member of the Living Out group of conservative Christians who promote celibacy for those who self-identify as experiencing same-sex attraction.
3: That's right. And he's also a member of the pastoral advisory group uh, established this year by the archbishops, uh, which has the task of, um, I quote, supporting and advising diocese on pastoral actions with regard to our current pastoral approach to human sexuality. So, so it may be interesting to see how people react to him being on such a group. Um, which is trying to find a way forward um, uh, on these issues in the church.
0: It does seem, much, the main message coming from the archbishops and the bishops is that we need to find a way of promoting good disagreements and that we're never going to all agree on this. But if this statement's basically saying, if you don't agree with this position, you're kind of beyond the pale, that does seem quite a difficult way forward.
2: It all has to be set in that context of what is going on in the United States and um, the Evangelical Church, where... You know, the culture wars, as it were, 20, 30 years ago, when the religious right were trying to shift the tone of the nation have largely been abandoned. You know, same-sex marriage is legal in all 50 states. And now I think the conflict is within the church. And you see increasingly prominent evangelicals saying, you know, what actually some of those old... Uh, things that we used to take for granted, such as marriage one man, one woman, are, n- are more up for question. And I think this is part of, you know, backlash is too strong a word, but it's an attempt by conservative evangelicals to reassert that actually they're still going to tr- stick to traditional teaching. But, um, but I think it's, it's likely to be seen increasingly as a debate within the church, rather than one that has much influence on the direction of society in the wider United States.
0: Interesting they called the statement the Nashville statement. I saw the mayor of Nashville and civic leaders have come out very strongly saying this does not represent the views of, of us as a city. And it's, it's kind of interesting when religious groups appropriate a particular name mm. and a particular stance can become associated with that city. Mm. I guess there's nothing to stop them doing that, but I guess people just have to use their publicity machines to make clear that this is not... This is a, a, group of, a particular group of evangelicals who happen to meet at a conference in Nashville, I think, mm. to talk mm. about this.
3: The same is the case with the Keswick ministries um, and the whole debate going on there about when mm. it's held. Um, during the summer, and the community members don't particularly like being associated necessarily with a Christian conference, which actually is quite bad for business. Well, they would say.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's just worth saying there are some conservative Christians who've been blogging and tweeting saying that they support some of what's in the national statement, they don't think it's the right way to go about things, they think that it um, goes too far in places. So I think there are plenty of evangelicals with that view on sexuality who are not signing this. I thought an interesting. Name I couldn't see on the list was that of Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, who's a leading reformed evangelical in America, but I don't think he signed it. Dr. Eve Poole is an author, speaker, and pioneer of the leadersmithing movement. She wrote in the Church Times recently about the digital obesity crisis among children and young people and the effect it may be having on mental health. I spoke to her. You write that many of us have probably not had much eye contact recently with children because they're glued to their digital devices. Um, Could you say some of what the evidence is about the extent of this? I mean, I'm sure we all know it anecdotally, but I believe there are some academic studies.
4: Well, um, more so than academic, actually, um, from think tanks and from Ofcom themselves. So Ofcom's study um, suggests that even three to four-year-olds are spending eight and a half hours online a week, um, which has grown exponentially and once they hit teenage years, uh, 12 to 15 age range, they're averaging over 20 hours a week online. Um, three quarters of that age category have a social media profile. And of course, as soon as you're on Facebook or Twitter, then you get into this whole arms race of having to keep up with likings and views and all that kind of stuff. The, the Ofcom report also suggested that um, teenagers are... Uh, increasingly using social media, um, not only at school, but also before school um, and after school. 2% of them are messaging still at midnight. And even at 10 o'clock, 10% of them are on social media. So there's a a knock-on problem with with the amount and quality of sleep that teenagers are getting, which is unhelpful. And I think a a huge volume of this age group, even from the age of 5, 40% of children have their own smartphone is in that age range of 5 to 15 they're, they're saying that's 41% with a smartphone so we're starting terribly young with children becoming rather addicted to these fabulous machines that that give them feedback uh, whenever they switch them on whenever they look at them there's something there's a reward there's a sweetie for them to look at and in order to keep Um, getting that kind of reaction they then have to feed into this system this greedy hungry system uh, 24 7 in order to um, keep those rewards coming
0: and you describe this in your piece as a digital obesity problem
4: well i mean actually this is this is not even me this is the children's commissioner Anne longfield who has i think uh, just launched uh, a five a day campaign Um, she thinks that um, this digital obesity is a bit like the general obesity crisis um, and that actually if parents as well as policy makers and schools and and other people in positions of authority over children started looking at social media a bit more like junk food, we might get some better ways of dealing with this um, digital obesity crisis. So she talks about um, the NHS has five wonderful steps to better mental well-being And she wants us to think of those five steps a bit like our five a day on healthy eating. So it's things like be mindful, be active, give to others, get creative, connect. These are just general features of how to uh, improve your mental health. And she thinks if we could get children to think about those five a day in the context of how they're interacting with digital devices, um, laptops, computers, smartphones and social media in general. That would help us get a better balance between the online and the real world. I suppose one
0: problem could be that the parents and carers might be as addicted as the children to some of these devices and therefore not as vigilant.
4: I, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think, um, you know, often we are using these devices as babysitting devices because parents are so very stretched themselves. So apart from the poor role modelling. Uh, because we are all, um, you know, this is part of our professional world these days, being available 24-7. The um, but they do think that uh, are really worrying. This is, again, data from the Education Policy Institute, uh, are really worrying almost 40% of UK 15-year-olds are what they would call extreme Internet users. That's more than six hours a day uh, online. Um, and this, I think, we're worse than... I can't remember it's peru or chile or something kind of the in in all of the company the countries the oecd countries they've looked at britain is sort of joint worst um, so so it is a particular problem in, in britain and as part of that um, the educational policy institute reports that one in three uk kids have experienced cyberbullying and unpleasantness online so the cost of this increased Traction with the online community is that there's quite a lot of harm coming through that channel it's not just about the distraction the the problems with potential um, sleep and um, you know social socializing with um, other people in the peer group in in the real world there's also this issue of um, abuse and bullying online
0: and, and you mentioned you allude to a link between this extreme internet use and the mental health problems that are prevalent among young people
4: Yes, I mean, again, it's very dangerous to try and make um, causal links um, between this kind of activity and mental health. But uh, it does seem extremely accidental that the problem of anxiety in the teenage group in particular is just rising exponentially. Um, And that does seem to be uh, coincidentally correlating with an increase in social media use in particular. Uh, And again, this should not really surprise us because this idea that you just need to go online to get feedback um, feeds into our biology. Um, And I mentioned in the piece I wrote for you, um, the study, the very famous study at UCLA about the vervet monkeys. Um, And they've been trying to look into um, serotonin, which... Uh, of course, you may know, know, is used in the treatment of depression. They were trying to um, find out more about the role of serotonin in, in the body, And looking at the vervet monkey community, they noticed that whoever was the sort of top monkey had almost double the amount of serotonin in their system than the next senior monkey, if you you like. And and what they found by tracking this population is if the top monkey um, was um, sort of put down by one of the other monkeys, their serotonin levels would plummet um, and they would therefore be depressed until they could... Um, gets kind of uh, their status to recover um, so so that I think is quite suggestive I mean of course this was vervet monkeys and not people but this idea that we are quite um, biologically conditioned to respond to feedback from other people is kind of common sense and what they found was that um, the one surefire way apart from Deposing a top monkey to make that top monkey's serotonin levels plummet was to maroon them with only a mirror for comfort. So, Mm -hmm. literally, this poor vervet monkey was just staring at itself in the mirror and they would become miserably depressed fairly instantly. Um, And I think this is slightly what happens when we are marooned with our devices um, with this online world where we seem to be terribly dependent on getting feedback and wanting to be liked with these little ticks and smiley faces and all this kind of stuff and if we don't get it or we get negative messages um, that makes us feel desperate and depressed and anxious Um, so that I think is why I'm trying to draw this link between social media use in particular and anxiety not just in teenagers although that is a particular tragedy and problem for this country and, and I'm sure... Many others, um, but I think it affects us all. I, I think we are all quite addicted to these these likes we get on Facebook. And I mean, the solution you
0: propose in the piece is to put down the devices and actually talk to each other.
4: I think so, because if you think about these teenagers who won't give you eye contact, why is that? Uh, I know teenagers have never been great at that anyway. but It's partly because they they don't always get an awful lot of reaction from us Brits who are trying to be frightfully grown up and set a good example. And I wonder if we've just lost a lot of that old fashioned human interaction um, and that just neighborliness and being friendly to people in the street. Um, I I remember all the furore there was when it became much more common to exchange the peace during (laughs) the Eucharist and how terribly upset people were about this sort of invasion of personal body space and all that kind of thing. But shouldn't we just be doing that more? I mean, the next time anybody charms you in public just because they show up, they're neat, they're tidy, they're well behaved, they smile. Um, Rather than just taking that for granted, I think we should just be doing a lot more cherishing of our fellow man. Um, And that includes the sulky teenagers that we don't quite understand, trying to seek out their gaze, trying to reassure them with some human contact. Because if we don't make the real world attractive, then we can't really blame teenagers for wanting to seek um, a, a world they can curate on their own online. And what role do you think there could be for the church here? Could, could the church be quite countercultural by
0: not letting these devices rule our lives and actually loving one another in in person?
4: Well, I think it's uh, it's attributed to Tertullian, I think, that idea that uh, other people looking at Christians say, look how they love one another. And I, I worry that possibly they don't always think that of us Christians. Um, And I know that there are many organisations that do have rules about the use of social media. And I'm sure there are many vicars who aren't very keen. People are tweeting during their sermons. But there is just something about not being distracted by social media, although there are some very specific things we could do about that as a discipline. Just trying to make sure that in our communities, whether it's churchgoers or, or not, that as Christians, we are just radiating that sort of quality of attention and love to all the people we meet so that they feel seen. Because a lot of this furious activity on social media is people wanting to feel significant and wanting to be noticed and loved. And that should be our particular gift as Christians for everyone that we encounter. I mean, there's a lot of talk in church circles about how social
0: media and the internet is a great mission opportunity. I mean, are you saying that we should perhaps exercise a bit of caution because of the dangers?
4: Well, I think it's it's both and, really. I mean, I don't think the online world's going to go away. And I think we all find it hugely useful. I think it's just making sure that it doesn't become unhealthy. Um, and I think that's where the Children's Commissioner is right. It's about the five a day campaign thinking so it's not to say never have pizza it's just saying also have your greens so uh, i think it would be disastrous to the church times if everyone went offline uh, and it would be difficult to access the news in the way that we do these days and communicate with each other so it's not to say don't do that it's just to say if you're spending all your pcc meetings worrying about social media profiles and feedback through the online world can you also spend as much time worrying about what the community notices about your activity physically um, and how the church is manifesting itself as salt and light physically in the community
0: Um, so you wrote for us a a few months ago Eve, about your latest book uh, leadersmithing published by bloomsbury Um, could you tell us a bit more about it
4: Leadersmithing is a word I coined because I teach leadership for Ashish Business School. And leadership sounds like one of these things where you can become it and you sort of get a label and a certificate and, and you sort of go off my boy and conquer. And I speak to a lot of leaders and most leaders are terrified about being found out. They all suffer from terrible imposter syndrome and very few of them really know what's going on. They're, they sort of have a plan and they have a vision and they they kind of have some hope and some good resources around them. But many leaders are just trying to muddle through on a day-to-day basis. And I thought that's less like the sort of intellectual MBA-style Harvard Business Review case studies that we are fed uh, by business schools. It's much more like the messiness of craft where you have disciplines, you're trained in how to do things beautifully and how to achieve mastery. But you do have to remake every time with fresh materials and try and keep making beautiful things around you. So leadersmithing was my attempt to earth now 15 years worth of experience teaching senior leaders from across the sectors, bishops and deans and vicars, as well as ambassadors and people who run Tesco and people who are in the Royal Shakespeare Company, a whole range of Different leaders from all walks of life, and to try and help get alongside them and say, Well, look, if this is your craft, how do we rediscover some of the disciplines of apprenticeship so that it is less of a black box and therefore more acceptable to more people? Because if there's one thing the world needs right now, it is fabulous leaders and more of them. Uh, And I think there is a lot of leadership around, but there are also, we know, Uh, A lot of leaders who are too scared to come forward for a whole range of reasons. Um, And we know just from the sort of normal statistics around gender and uh, diversity at the top of organizations, that it's a real problem that we are not representing the communities that we serve. And my experience working with leaders is that there's just an awful lot of fear. There's a huge volume of people who just don't feel they could really get away with it. They couldn't really pull it off. And they're being held back by fear. So I wanted just to try and make it easy for anyone who aspires to leadership or feels that they really care about something that they want to lead, but they're just holding back to make that an easier process. So what we did at Ashish Business School was we spoke to a whole load of board level leaders and said to them, well, come on, you know, given what you know now as leaders, what do you wish you'd known 10 years ago? And how did you learn those things? Because if we could bottle that, if we could feed it to putative leaders on the way up, then it would make it a lot quicker to become job ready. Um, And it would be it would would demystify the whole leadership thing.
0: What were some of the things that people wish they'd known 10 years ago?
4: A lot of it was things like I can do it. Uh, Very many leaders thought, gosh, why has it taken me so long? Because this is much easier than I thought. Um, A lot of people thought uh, that it was harder than they thought because there are things around decision making uh, and difficult conversations in particular that people find very hard. Uh, One of the very interesting research findings was that people tend to be held back because they don't want to have a difficult conversation about something with someone. And the reason they don't want to have that conversation is they're terribly worried either about chaps shouting or women weeping. And, you know, that's great, but it just means a lot of conversations aren't being had because we're terribly worried about the kind of emotional overspill and how they might deal with that. But just imagine if we were fearless about conversations, the way that Jesus used to march around having any kind of conversation he wanted with anyone. Imagine if we just were very clear about what the point of all of this is and we could just open eyed, go up to people we needed to talk to and have that conversation beautifully and genuinely we would all just be able to crack on a lot faster so there's a lot of stuff in this book which is really practical tips about how to say no how to ask for things that are difficult how to deal with poor performance all these things which are bread and butter not only in organizations but in congregations up and down the country of course many
0: churches are places where people struggle to say honestly what they're thinking
4: I've found that I think probably my biggest audience uh, in terms of people buying the book um, has been clergy because I think you're absolutely right. There's a lot of fear, uh, particularly now we've got this sort of desperate bums on seats um, mission, which makes it very hard for people to to risk causing offence in case the the richer parishioners in the pews who are bankrolling the thing uh, take on. So there is a real problem, I think, about courage, but, but it is also one of love, really. I think if we love people enough then we can see through our fears about how they might react um, and find the courage to say the right things and find the right words and and hold those conversations in love. Um, but there are some sort of technical skills involved in this which have never traditionally been taught to the clergy and haven't particularly been taught even through management courses in businesses. Um, so, you know, there are some quite bog standard things about how do you go about actually listening well, actually doing good eye at actually figuring out strategies for talking to people it's it's a very sort of um the the book is a bit like a car manual really there's a lot of sort of spanners and widgets in there as well as some sort of philosophy about leadership
0: so what have people enjoyed reading in this week's edition of the church times
1: I think my highlight is probably our front cover. Um, It shows 14-year-old Becky Tyler who gave the message at the Eucharist on Sunday at Greenbelt. Um, It's a really lovely photo and uh, she's also been in touch with us today to say that she's very happy with it as well and we're going to send her some copies. So, yeah, I think it's a really beautiful cover.
0: Brilliant.
3: Um, I actually didn't go to Greenbelt this year so I very much enjoyed uh, some of the features and uh, reviews which were... Uh, Feature in the paper. So if it's not something that's um you have been to yet, um then you can pick up our paper and have a look and see whether it's your cup of tea. Perhaps one one for next year.
0: I'd like to highlight um, a news story and a comment piece, which are, are related in some ways. One is about a church-run scheme providing school uniforms for people who um, for whom the cost is really too much, and whom I mean, this is a great source of anxiety. Uh, Just a very simple but um, helpful idea It requires a lot of hard work and initiative. One single mother of seven is quoted as saying the service has been a lifeline. I worry about whether I have everything I need or whether I need anything extra. Going back to school is a huge pressure and this community wardrobe, as it's called, is of huge help to me and other families in the area. Just another piece in our comment section that really highlights good work the church does that makes a difference to real people's lives is the Healing Ministry of Toddler Groups by Claire Kaye just talking about the crucial role such groups can play up and down the country for particularly mothers who have mental health issues, postnatal depression or other mental health problems when they have young kids as a way of providing sort of basic listening and counselling, signposting them to mental health services. And also for people um, who are experiencing food poverty, it's, it's a way of finding that out, providing help, signposting people to food banks. And actually these groups which seem to just be um, going on week in week out day in day out um, can make a real difference
2: uh, the one that really caught my eye was a, as a news story um, headlined historian finds racy monks flouted the rules um, i've always been a bit of a history geek so i particularly enjoyed this one it's about some new research from the university of durham which has been looking into uh, benedictine monks in uh, britain during the 16th and 17th centuries and has discovered to some surprise that Far from the kind of stereotypes of them being austere and pious, godly men, a lot of these monks lived lives, uh, quote, far removed from the expected discipline, which included refusing to be abstinent, serving as soldiers, and even in one case, fighting a duel. Uh, my favourite story here is of Anselm John Mannock, who accidentally killed his brother Thomas by dropping a cannonball from a window. <laughs> Overwhelmed with guilt, he decided to devote himself to religion.
0: Only in the church times will he get that. <laughs>
2: That's it for this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find lots more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, www.churchtimes.co.uk. If you're not yet a subscriber, why not take a look at our latest introductory offer, one month of our digital package and five issues of the paper for just £5. Go to www.churchtimes.co.uk subscribe. The music, as always, was by Sought After Sounds. Don't forget to tune in next Friday for our next episode and thanks for listening.